You are now entering a world. A world beyond the reach of the average eye. A world filled with wondrous imagination. Where good and evil are an epic struggle. An everlasting fight. Where courage and bravery lurk around every corner. And the magic of the mind is unleashed. Welcome to Avery World. On this episode, Jane Danger will crack open the pages of her own memoirs once again and recite the tale known as Two Weeks to Kill. Her second case just weeks removed from a bird in the cage. She'll take you back to end of summer 1963 as her younger self embarks on a dark and dangerous tale at the beginning of her young and wondrous career. I'm afraid that my southern roots and olden mentality is forcing me to extend a warm welcome to you as you have found yourself back within the pages of my words created by the memories of my past. My urge to be hospitable also brings me to write that if this is your first experience with my tales, then you may have to endure the random callbacks and mentions from my last case. For at my age, I do not have the time to go back and recap what exactly happened, but I can with all certainty tell you that it is not essential to have read a bird in a cage, only helpful. For this story takes place not too long after. We are still in the summer of 63, but I am in a different place heading into this case for I am not the naive angry drunk that I was just a month prior. Let me clarify that at this time I am still a heavy drinker but my naivete has shrunken to be replaced by my experience. For my week in Los Angeles has finally ridden me of my catch-22 that was stalling my career from ever burgeoning. Now my career as a PI is a new flower, stretching past the weeds that were blocking its path to the sun readying to embrace the warmth of the rays for the blossoming is upon us. I say this not to gloss over my anger, for anger at my age of 23 has been and will always be a plague. But not the plague that it was at 16, for at 16 one is angry without reason. At 23 one is angry with understanding. It is that understanding that allowed me to take strides in ridding myself of the plight of anger. For my anger has turned from an explosive hurricane ready to pour onto the next soul that thumbs their nose at me and drown them in the waters of my age that no doubt stem from my abusive youth. But also my time being overlooked and discriminated against for simply being young and a woman, which alone are both detriments to anyone in this society, but together are one-two punch that will not only knock one down, but keep you down on the unfair 
and cold ring mat of a life that ensnares us all. Finally getting off the mat and standing on my own two feet has allowed me to grow my anger from that hurricane to a tidal wave of self-pity. I wish I can tell you that I have become a better person since a bird in a cage. But I cannot bear to lie to you, my most faithful reader. I was not a better person for it, though. A scarred one in the least. For my week in LA had shown me a side of the human condition that one should be able to live a sad life without. But with it sinks one into a depression so powerful that it's stronger than quicksand. More like tar. The very tar the city was built on top of. So loud with its steam and bubbling, corrosive with its gelatin-like structure and hardening under its massive weight that holds one in place for all time. Allowing one to decay into a mesh of bones and skin, but never the peace of complete dissolution. Taking one from the grips of time and into the spiritual abyss of history. I say all of this to set the very explosive scene for my well-being in this crazy dance of life, for in a month's time I had expected the world to embrace me and the money to come. Pouring in. I thought since my time in LA was somewhat successful, that my own mother would welcome me back with open arms to rebuild our broken relationship. I thought a new path of healing that saw us walking the yellow brick road just like Dorothy and the Scarecrow. But... As I arrived at the train station, I was met with a void of nothingness that signaled to me that my life-changing adventure into the darkness of humanity meant nothing to those around me, and the world spun as it had before. The police force still didn't recognize me as legit, and even offered me my old job as a secretary back hearing that my mother was in financial trouble. The tension between me and my mother still stayed palpable, and the city of Las Vegas only turned to me as the person who can find a cat stuck up in a tree. But I was lucky that George's last gift to anyone was to me, and that gift was almost his entire trust fund of a total nearing $300,000. Which now, and back then, was more than a lot of money. However, my will to prove everyone wrong about what I am capable of in the promise George Postmortem made me make to him to continue trying to inspire good in the world. Through my detective work, kept me going down the dark path I found myself on. Now you ask, what is so dark about this path? And I answer with one simple word. Everything. August is an unusual month in Nevada. Heat subsides for humidity as the change in season is upon us. Though, the seasons don't change drastically in the latter. The night gets colder than it was in the summer and the days cloudier, with a strong wind that brings a shiver to the city. This shiver being extraordinarily potent now that the city was fully drenched in the grasp of a murderer. If this was London in 1888, then we would be entrenched in the historic killings of Jack the Ripper. But this is a different country, city, state, and time, and victims all together. Instead of women, the killer is targeting priests. Instead of random times and attacks, this killer strikes every two weeks, starting on a Sunday, and killing every 14 days. I know you notice the significance of that day, Sunday. Though this is the Vegas Strip, it is still 1963, and the church's pool has not yet subsided. This has sent the town into a state of peril. I didn't think it would recover from. 
The killing of Prisa sent the police force into a paranoid frenzy that saw the spikes and arrests and shooting of mostly unarmed people, mainly black. This was an unsettled time, a doubtful time. Doubtful that the purity of kindness towards our fellow man would return, or if it ever existed at all. Where was I in the mix of all this ungodly chaos? On the outside. As this has been six weeks and ten deaths. One on the first Sunday, three on the third, and on the fifth, sixth. One man or multiple managed to kill three priests and three nuns in one night. This has prompted every church in the city to have constant police presence 24-7. And on the day I was finally visited by the man who would bring me into the case. It was Sunday morning, the sixth Sunday, which means only seven more days before a predicted nine members of the faith would be murdered by whoever and whatever sadist was attacking. I wasn't much of a churchgoer since leaving Texas with my mother, but my mother still went to church on Sundays, and on occasion I would go with her if she nagged me enough about going to hell if I didn't, and the fear for my immortal soul would start to sink into my conscience. But since coming back from Los Angeles, that fear for my immortal soul was no longer a concern for me. For I was now focused on the devils around me, not the devils I had yet to meet. And wouldn't face until the day I passed on from this world. All the same, Father Joseph Morrison was a friend of my mother's and a good man. Especially to befriend that sinful and hellish woman. So, when my mother called me and told me that he wanted to speak to me this Sunday, I did not hesitate to pick out my best hat and long jacket and make my way from my office just outside the Strip, down to his church, which was located on the outskirts of Vegas, but just close enough where the Vegas centers congregated. My office was doubling from my home at the time, and as I was in the middle of renovating a new home for me and my mother, she decided to stay in our old apartment until the place was done, though she threatened idly not to live with me in this new house often. I found myself living in my office as the phone could ring at any moment or a letter could be delivered for a new case and I needed to stay vigilant. Though, most of the calls and letters came from David Haas, my friend back in LA who hopes to see me again. But more on David later. This was about the murdered priest, though at the time I couldn't see that as I was still recovering from my stint in LA and found myself at the bottom of a bottle. Often, as I struggled to gain an ounce of respect from everyone around me, including myself. I showed up at the summon late, hoping to miss the service altogether. I mistimed. I also mistimed my drinking time, for I was not sober when I walked through the doors of the church to the singing and praising that happened in the Lord's house. I found myself in the back pew as Father Morrison concluded his service. Now go in peace, brothers and sisters. In the Lord... But remember that in this hour of darkness when the light seems so dim that it appears non-existent, a whisper in the symphony of sins that has plagued our community, I urge you to remember that the Lord often speaks with volume. He uses the whispers to talk to his most faithful, for he is not interested in those who only follow when he yells. For we all know raising our voices in order to convey knowledge is a sign of an ill temper and lack of spiritual guidance, and understanding that it is those who are the most quiet that are the most effective in conveying the message of God. So listen to the whispers. Hear him speak in your heart, for that is where the true word resides. And in this time of darkness, 
where my brothers and sisters of the faith are losing their lives. No, they do not die in vain, do they, my children? No, they do not. They live in the whispers of the Lord. Drown out the hatred that surrounds you. Push aside the death that is at your front door. Do not acknowledge those that are put on this earth to kill you. For there are forms of killing. You can kill the body. The body is going to die anyway. But do not let anyone kill your spirit, your belief in yourself, and in the Almighty. For God has a plan for all of you. Even if that plan is to take your life, he does not do it in vain. But for you to join the whispers of his orchestra, because he plays forever, doesn't he, my children? So go in peace in the name of the Lord. And with that, his children got up and went. They even saw my mother, who upon seeing me stopped her procession to the outside of the church and stood at my side waiting for the church to empty. It is good to see you, Jane. Mother, always good to see you. How's the house coming along? A few more months and it will be complete. Contractor said we can move in the next month if we wanted to. Should have everything but running water. Great. We'll bathe in the river of the Sierra. She said with more than a hint of sarcasm in her voice. Not even Jesus bathed every day, Mother. I said chuckling at my own joke. Yes, well, I'm sure if you were alive today, he would be disgusted by many a thing that your generation has brought upon us. A bathing would not be one of them. Just my generation? I'm sure Jesus would be concerned with more than just rock and roll and soul music. My age group kept his word alive, but yours is dying. And Jim Crow is keeping his word alive. My words stumped her and stopped her in her tracks. She stutters before responding. That... That was the generation before me, she said. And then we noticed that the church was empty. For how long? I don't think either of us knew. Father Morrison, my mother said with a curtsy and a smile. Diana, how are you? He said as he grabbed her by the cheeks and gave her a kiss on each. Better after listening to your word. I must say I'm still afraid to go outside and I fear for your life as well, Father. Do not fear for me, my child. My life is in the Lord's hand. And if this madman chooses to take it, then I will go be with my Heavenly Father. This is when he took a step back and noticed me. And Miss Danger. When will I be seeing you walk down the aisle in my church? Women don't have to be married by 23 anymore, Father. I know. I meant to receive the sacrament. We haven't sipped the blood of the Lord in many weeks. Oh. I said embarrassed that I misunderstood the picture he was trying to paint as I am always seeming to be fighting this old god that would not let go of the control of this world, even as it begs for change. And David being so far away from me at this time had me sentimental. Truth is, I did dream of a domesticated life. Even now, standing in a church, I can picture myself wearing a white gown with a train as long as the aisle, a veil as transparent as a cloudy day. David standing at the altar, my mother in the front pew and Father Morrison ready to marry us so we can finally start our lives together. I haven't told David of this dream. I, I feared would be too damning to the mission George has made me promise to continue. But a part of me wishes to break that promise. Forget about inspiring good and vanquishing evil and just settle down on a farm somewhere and just be. Excuse us, Diana. 
Father Morrison says, snap me out of my trance and back into reality. I would like to speak to your daughter alone. Please, Father, my mother cut in. Urge you to rethink this. My daughter should not be involved in anything to do with this, this two-week killer. My mother pleaded. Surprised she did it in front of me. For her showing any sentiment towards me was a rarity. But Father Morrison stood strong, yet gentle with a smile. God has a plan for your daughter. I've seen great things in her future. Keeping her away from dangerous situations would be denying the gift that God has given her. I understand, Father, but hasn't she been shot at enough? I can handle myself, I said, butting into a conversation that is only about me, but not including me for some reason. Probably because I was young and a woman. My mother says nothing. She only gives me a look that could kill me faster than any bullet ever could. As you wish, she says as she leaves the church. Apologies, Father Morrison. My mother can be cold but protective. No need to apologize, Dane. It's okay. A mother must protect her daughter. She might not do it as gentle as a mother gorilla, but the ferociousness of a lion is to be respected just as well. He says with a chuckle that made me laugh as we made our way to the altar at the front of the church. You did want to talk to me about the priest killer case, didn't you, Father? I asked. He said nothing for a step or two, then spoke. Have the police reached out to you about the case? The police don't like to involve me in their affairs. And not enough for uh, testosterone. And yet they could benefit from less of it. He says with a chuckle that once again got me to smile. It's been a while since I had genuinely smiled. I don't know if it was the church or this charming old man who runs it, but it got me feeling somewhat good. Come, we'll continue this in my office. He said as he knelt and made the sign of the cross before stepping on the stage holding the altar. He walked toward a door behind the stage. I went to step up on the stage until... Make sure you genuflect before approaching the altar, he said, with a little less charm and without even looking back at me. It did stop me in my tracks, and I proceeded to look up at the large statue of Christ nailed to that cross, staring down with hollowed-out eyes. I couldn't imagine his pain, the suffering he must have endured, during not only this moment, but his whole public ministry. I must admit that as a child I did believe in him, that he turned water into wine, broke the one loaf of bread into many, and raised the man from the dead, all while spreading the word of God. I had no real choice or say in the matter. But at the leaving Texas, after seeing what this world did to my mother, what it did to me, to George Meade and Galvin Young and my father, my faith had waned in more ways than one. I questioned him and his word. How could a God so good allow so many hateful and sinful things to go on, punished or not? George Meade kidnapped as a child. Twenty years held by Galvin Young, farmed for his music. My mother married to a malignant evil man who beat her. Me, blessed with so many talents, yet denied the ability to use them just because of my gender. Now this murderer, this sick person, or people slaughtering women and men at the cloth. And I am supposed to come here to this place every Sunday and pray to some statue? I couldn't comprehend it. Maybe they're killing because they have the same questions I have. Maybe it's a deeper reason. All I knew was that I had no clue if this Jesus is the Son of God and if God ever existed at all. And if he does, he sure as hell ain't watching over me or my mother. Still, 
Father Morrison asked me to genuflect. In this statue is quite intimidating, so genuflect I did before following him into his office. His office was tiny, but mainly because of the stacks of books and paperwork on the desk and shelves. Also the pictures of his family. I'm guessing mainly extended family. Miss Danger, these are dark times the church faces. Let me stop you there, Father. I cut him off as he sat down in his chair behind his desk. You know I cannot get involved in an active police investigation. He smirks as I say this. I'm not trying to directly involve you in that investigation. Especially now that the Federal Bureau is in town. The FBI is here in Vegas? Only took six people getting murdered at once. I said to myself, but obviously out loud. I couldn't agree more, Jane. I fear the police and the FBI don't have our best interests. They place patrols outside every church in and around the city. Yes, but the murders are not happening inside the churches. They happen at the living commissaries. Which, the police say, the FBI is not allowing the patrols because it would break the Constitution's separation of church and state. Word is the FBI is also trying to get the guards at the churches pulled. There is a sister at one of the commissaries off Jordan Street. She complained about a man the past several nights stalking the place, looking as if he's scouting it out. The police won't do anything. They blame it on the FBI's involvement. Have you talked to the FBI? No one can reach them. The number takes you back to Virginia, and they say all information is classified. I fear they're only here for PR reasons, and not to help us survive. I would like to hire you, Jane, to make sure the nuns at the commissary are well looked after. That they are protected, and if someone tries to harm them, that you will stop them. Father, as much as I would love to help, I'm not a mercenary for hire. I'm damn sure not a killer. You are a card-carrying member, aren't you? Yes, I have a gun. That I had to fight for because the men in the Attorney General's office did not want a woman to have a gun. Still, I can't go shooting people for stalking. I told him. This did not seem to persuade him one bit. I am very close with the bishop of this county, Miss Danger. He took a breath, and I noticed that his now informal Jane had turned into Miss Danger. This unsettled me as this switch in him was unsuspected. The dark look in his eyes, the crackle in his voice, his clutched hand shaking on top of his desk. Father Morris is not speaking to me as a priest anymore, but a man desperate to save those he loves and his own life. This only reminded me of George, who pretended to be Reginald Marley to get me to agree to his case when he approached me at the swing club. This all-too-familiar feeling gave me a sinking knot in my stomach. But I had to ask myself, what was his real plan here? I am a very high-ranking member of the church. I am friends with the bishop of the diocese, and I play golf with the mayor and his general counsel, along with the police chief. Very powerful men. If you were to use force, and if it had to be deadly, I assure you, you would be protected. I'm not telling you to kill anybody, just keep those nuns safe. When I get the chief to bring me onto the case, who do you think told me to hire you? He wants to help you. He does. But his hands are tied. Most of his men would never accept you. You would only receive roadblocks if you worked directly for the police. This is the best way to use you. He finished. And now the choice was mine, but the legality isn't what gave me pause. It was the veiled threat that lurked within it. 
Father Morrison just told me that he was a very powerful man who was more than well connected. If he can protect me, I better be damn sure he can destroy me. If I denied this case in his hour of need, I would have nowhere to turn in mine. He has connections in the police force, the courts, politics. If I denied this case, I would be ruined right at the precipice of what could be greatness. Failing or not made no significant impact on me, for I would still be protected. But I was raised in Texas and grew up in Vegas. I know all too well the stories about dealing with a mob. Once you're in, you can never be out. How much? I said as he cocked his head to the side in shock. Money, how much? He straightened his neck on that note. More than enough. I'll take the job, father. On the next episode of Every World Stories, Jane Danger continues her tale as she goes to the commissary to meet the nuns for the first time and learns that there is much more to this case than she could have ever imagined. As you exit our world, remember, life is what you make it. So make it joyous, make it wonderful, and make it filled with imagination.